Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to gather as believers this morning, to sit under the preaching and teaching of your word, to sing praises to you together with one voice. Lord, we, we ask that all that we do this morning, that you would find glory, that you would be pleased in our time together. And Lord, we ask that you would draw near to us and work in us, Lord. We pray that you would open up our minds and hearts to hear your word, to receive your word, to walk by faith, Lord. We pray you would strengthen us in faith and in godliness this morning. And Lord, we ask that you would deepen our rest and our confidence in Jesus through what we hear this morning. Lord, I thank you for the privilege it is to preach your word, and I pray you'd help me to faithfully preach your word, help me to say what is true and write anything that would be unhelpful. Lord, I pray you'd keep me from saying. Lord, I pray you'd help me to speak boldly and clearly this joy that you've given to all who've placed their trust in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. When the Supreme Court in the United States announces their judicial decisions, they have a very interesting way of getting those decisions out. And uh, the office at my church that I used to serve at was only five blocks from the court, so I was able to witness the way they got these decisions out. So it's been a longstanding policy that there are no recording devices allowed there in the courts. There's no video cameras. There's no live streaming intentionally. They've not caught up to the times technologically. So they've stayed with the old school method of printing out on paper the decisions that the court has reached. They take those decisions over to a clerk's office where there are members of the press, and those members of the press kind of in a quick handoff take those, and out in the hallway are waiting some interns for each of those media outlets. Those interns get the handoff And I've seen these interns come out before. Uh, They're dressed in business attire, so young ladies wearing dresses, young men wearing button-down shirts, ties, and they've got running shoes on with that attire because it's about a quarter of a mile from that clerk's office out to the front of the steps to the edge of the property of the court where the media outlets, the news anchors, are waiting to receive that decision, and then they will announce the declarations of the highest court of the land. Now, occasionally on big decisions where there was a lot of anticipation, I would go out front because I I just kind of figured, well, I'm going to hear about this on the news. It'd be fun to see it in person. And oftentimes, it'd feel like an athletic event out there. You'd have people on different sides of the issue that were out there waiting to hear. You weren't going to get that word on social media first. You were going to get it right there at the front of the court. But there was this anticipation to hear, to, to understand these declarations. Well, the greatest judge... God, the holy judge, has already announced the greatest declaration the world has ever heard. He was fully pleased in his son, Jesus, the eternal son of God, pleased in his life that he came down to earth and perfectly kept God's law, that Jesus Christ alone is the righteous one. He laid down his life and he died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin for anyone who would believe in him. He rose from the dead on the third day that anyone who would repent and put their faith in Jesus will be forgiven of their sin against a holy God. The greatest declaration ever, a sinner declared not guilty, righteous, not because of their good works, not because of their good intentions or their good efforts, declared righteous because of Jesus Christ and united to his death and his resurrection by faith alone. It's the greatest declaration ever given. Sinners declared not guilty and righteous in Jesus. 
The way this message has gotten spread is still old school. It hasn't changed. The feet of the messengers of the church of Jesus Christ. Taking that message to the ends of the earth. But if Galatians has taught us anything, it's that the gospel is not merely for the beginning of the Christian life and something that we graduate on to greater truths. It's not merely the ABCs of the Christian life, but rather the A to Z. And so in other words, we need to hear the gospel here every Sunday morning. We need to rehearse the truth of the gospel this morning. That's what we do is we look at Galatians chapter 2. We look at this declaration that God has given that the only way to become right with Him and pronounced not guilty, justified in His sight, is by faith alone in Christ. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to be in Galatians 2, verses 11 through 21 this morning. We're continue on in our sermon series in the book of Galatians. So if you're new this morning, it's really easy to jump in. We're going to take a look at this passage, chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. The best way to stay engaged in the sermon is to open up a copy of God's Word. So open up your Bibles now or use that Bible right in front of you in the pew rack. You can take that Bible if you're using the pew Bible, and you can turn to page 972, 972. 7, 2. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. Let me read through all of this passage as we begin our time together. Starting there in chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Galatians chapter 2, the main point that I want us to see as we consider this passage this morning is this. Through faith in Christ, we become right with God and live for Him. Through faith in Christ, we become right with God and live for Him. Our passage this week in Galatians 2, it continues to unpack Paul's main thesis that we looked at back in chapter 1, 
verse 11. His main argument there in chapter 1, verse 11, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. He's been making this point, belaboring this point, that he was not a man-made apostle, not a man-made messenger. He was sent by Jesus himself, and the message he preached was not a man-made message. And he continues to unpack this thesis here as he shows how the gospel message stands as an authority over everyone, even over the most influential messengers like the Apostle Peter. And Paul uses this occasion here where Peter is is living in a way that is out of step with the gospel. He uses that occasion to launch into a, a brief and compressed section of teaching on the central Christian doctrine of justification by faith alone. Well, as we make our way through verses 11 through 21, there's three parts this morning. I'll go through them as we go, but just to give them to you up front, three parts. Confronted by truth, justified by faith, living by faith. Confronted by truth, justified by faith, living by faith. Let's look first in verses 11 through 14, confronted by truth. In this section, Paul recounts a a confrontation with Peter. You see the name Cephas there. We've noted already that this is Peter's name in Aramaic. And Paul's recounting of this story is connected to what we've seen previously in this letter to the Galatians. So he continues to unpack this thesis that the gospel is not a man-made message. And he shows how the gospel has authority even over the most influential men. So in other words, the message has authority over the messenger. The message has authority over the messengers. The message has authority over the church. The church didn't invent the gospel. The church didn't create the gospel. The church does not have authority over the gospel. It's the other way around. The gospel created the church, created you if you're in Christ. And the gospel indeed is our measuring stick, our very authority. Now the Bible records things honestly. And once again, the Apostle Peter doesn't come away looking good in this passage. A a pillar of the church, one who helped establish the church, doesn't come away looking good in this scene. And when Peter was departing from the gospel through his actions, Paul confronts him with the truth of the gospel. Verses 12 through 14 explains the confrontation. A little bit of background, Antioch was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire at that time. It was a diverse city, uh, but it also had a large Jewish community, so mainly a Gentile city, meaning the nations outside of Israel, but also a significant Jewish community. And that's what the church looked like there. It had a presence with a Jewish community and Gentiles there, a wonderful picture of the gospel bringing together Jew and Gentile. And the church in Antioch was really the first majority Gentile church. Jerusalem church, primarily Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but Antioch, primarily Gentile believers. So those who were outside of the nation of Israel. So the scene is that Peter, a Jewish apostle, came to Antioch to visit that church. And when he came to Antioch, we read in verse 12 that he was eating with the Gentiles. And we read that he was doing this until certain men came from James. That's the Apostle James, the brother of Jesus, a leader there in the Jerusalem church. We aren't told exactly why this group came from James in Jerusalem, but 
their arrival sparked a change in Peter's behavior. We read at the end of verse 12, when they came, he drew back and separated himself. So he's separating himself from other believers in the Lord Jesus Christ there in that church. Now, it's important to understand what's going on here with the significance of the Old Testament food laws or dietary laws. So a Jewish person living according to the law of Moses would not have shared a table with Gentiles. They would have understood Jewish people, God's people in Israel clean, outside of the nation of Israel unclean. They wouldn't eat the same food as Gentiles. They wouldn't share the same dishes or vessels that food were served on out of concern for purity and cleanliness. Now, Peter initially had no problem eating with the Gentiles there at the church in Antioch. And and by eating with them, I certainly understand that Peter was sharing fellowship with them in a meal, but I would also understand also that he was no longer observing the food laws found in the Old Testament. So Peter was having a good old time. He might have been having his first taste of North Carolina barbecue, enjoying it for the first time, eating right there with them. And he was doing this until this group came from Jerusalem. We see down in verse 14 even that Paul said that Peter was a Jew living like a Gentile. That's where I'm getting it from, that that he was no longer observing these Old Testament food laws. He was living like a Gentile. He'd given up observing those food laws. Well, why was Peter eating with the Gentiles? Well, in response to a heavenly vision from the Lord. If you look back at Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16, you can write that down, take a look at it later, Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16, we see that while praying there, Peter had a vision where Jesus spoke to him. And that vision commanded him to kill and eat all types of animals. And, And the point of that vision is that Peter heard the Lord declare that all food was clean. God himself overturning the old, clean, unclean distinction. Jesus brought a new covenant. He formed a a new people, making Jew and Gentile one through faith in Christ. So no longer would food or people be considered unclean or unclean simply by their ethnic origin. You see, the Old Testament law fulfilled in Jesus And therefore, the food laws and circumcision and Sabbath fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. No longer the markers of God's people would those things be, but rather the Spirit through faith in Jesus. They would share in one Spirit, marking them off as the people of God. Now, Peter knew all of this. And therefore, when he ate with the Gentiles, he was acting out of conviction. Conviction that he gained directly from the Lord in Acts 10. So when he drew back and he, and he separated himself, he was acting out of cowardice. He was afraid. We're not sure exactly what happened with this group from Jerusalem, but we read at the end of verse 12, Peter drew back because he was fearing the circumcision party, fearing their opinion, fearing their thoughts, fearing what they might report back to Jerusalem about. So it seems like this group from Jerusalem, they were shocked to see Peter, a Jew, eating with the Gentiles. It likely left them unsettled. Maybe even they put some pressure on Peter. Uh, What's clear here is that Peter feared people in this situation rather than fearing God. He acted out of cowardice and not out of conviction in God's Word. He was more concerned about the judgment of people 
than the judgment of God. The impact we read there in verse 13 is that other Jewish believers stopped eating with the Gentiles as well. Even Barnabas, the missionary to the Gentiles, he too was led astray and stopped eating with the Gentiles. So what we see here is a division in the church, a message that was being sent through Peter's actions that was out of step with the truth of the gospel, and it's called hypocrisy. You see several references there in verse 13 to hypocrisy. And in this context, hypocrisy is acting in a manner that disguises your convictions. Acting in a manner that disguises your convictions. In fear, Peter turned away from eating with the Gentiles. He, he put on a mask, hiding what he knew to be true. So he hadn't merely forgotten here. He was hiding what he knew to be true. His fear of people, it led to hypocrisy. And the problem with all of this, we see at the end of verse 14, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's why Paul confronted Peter with the truth. He called him out. Peter's fearful and hypocritical behavior was sending a message. The rest of the Jewish believers heard that message loud and clear. Barnabas heard that message loud and clear. They were living in light of, at that point, a different gospel, wrongly sending the message that Gentiles would have to live like Jews to honor God and become His people. In other words, Jesus plus works of the law to be saved. This was not a small error. This wasn't a type of issue that believers could just disagree on. Uh, this was not a personality clash between two apostles. This wasn't some sort of power struggle between two apostles. It was a moment that called for a clear stand for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What was at stake in this church where believers were first called Christians? That's the importance of the church of Antioch. Believers first called Christians there is that the truth of the gospel, that God saves Jews and Gentiles in the same way, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, that glorious truth was at stake of being confused and lost very quickly there in that church. You see, Peter's problem was that he had right belief, but wrong behavior. He'd not forsaken the gospel here. I mean, he hadn't turned away from it entirely. He wasn't falling into apostasy, but he was sinning, and his sinful actions were undermining the gospel. And it serves as a warning to all of us. It's not okay to merely have right belief and then go live with wrong actions. It sends a message to us, be careful what you teach with your actions. Consider that in the life of our church, your example influences others either for good or for bad. It's all of us. It's certainly true for elders and for our teaching and example. It's true for every member of our church. It's true for every parent here when you leave and go lead in the home. It's true for every employee and student here. It's true for every single person. Consider that your life in the church and your life everywhere sets an example for others for either good or for bad. What does your example look like this past week? Did your example commend 
the gospel to those around you? Or did your example confuse the gospel? Now, I'm not talking about falling short. We all fall short. Pastor Jonathan did a wonderful job last week of showing us that hypocrisy is not the gap between what we are and what we one day will be. Otherwise, we'd have no hope. So it's not just falling short. So, so we all have sin to confess. What I'm talking about is not living out your convictions, hiding those convictions, forsaking what you know is true, having right belief, but going out and living in wrong behavior and not being that bothered about it. Did your example confuse the gospel? Did it contradict the gospel to those around you? Well, there's a warning here for all of us. Be, be careful against disguising your true convictions. Your true convictions, your convictions in the gospel should be lived out here on Sunday morning and on Monday morning. So for true Christians, sometimes it's like, oh, you're a different person on Sunday. I don't think that's the problem. I think it's like, you're, I think you're your real self here on Sunday morning. We love Jesus. We're thankful for the gospel. We, we want to, to, to walk in ways that honor God more and more. I assume that is true of every sincere believer here in this room. Our struggle is then how do we live that on a Monday morning? The struggle often is how do we not just be a Sunday morning church member and not live out our convictions on Friday night? That's our, our struggle. Be the person you are on Friday night that you are on Sunday morning. Brothers and sisters, look at the heart of this, people-pleasing. People-pleasing is dangerous. We should take note that even a pillar apostle was tempted with the fear of man. Peter, I would assume, a more mature believer than I'll ever be, or you'll ever be, he was an eyewitness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we see he wasn't exempt from being tempted by the fear of people and giving into us. Well, giving into that, rather. Last week, Pastor Jonathan gave some, some great direction on fighting hypocrisy. I'll repeat part of what he gave us last week. It's a great application to consider again. Fight fear with the truth of God's Word. Often what drives hypocrisy in our life, it's, it's fear, it's insecurity, it's wanting to please others. It's concerned about what our co-workers will think about us. It's concerned about what unbelieving family members will think about us. Uh, we're often driven by the fear of people, worried about others, what others might think or do. And so we put on a mask and live in a way that we might find acceptance by others. Well, we fight this by growing in our fear of the Lord. That's what Sunday mornings is. It's growing in our awe of God and our desire for Him, our delight in Him, that our appetite would grow to walk in ways that fear Him throughout the week and delight in Him daily. And as our view of God grows, as our view of the gospel gets rehearsed here on Sunday morning and the gospel gets rehearsed in our daily lives, uh, that gap will be shrunk, that the opinion of man in our lives and how important it may seem, it starts to, to shrink and that we long more and more to walk in ways that fear the Lord. Every Sunday morning is a chance for us corporately to be confronted by the truth of the Word of God. Every second Sunday morning, we take the Lord's Supper, reminding us to reconcile where we need to be reconciled vertically with the Lord and horizontally with one another. And that's meant to grow our appetite and desire to live for God daily. The gospel is for our everyday life. 
Well, this occasion of conduct out of step with the truth launches Paul into declaring the heart of the truth of the gospel. We see here next in verses 15 and 16, justified by faith. That's part two, verses 15 and 16, justified by faith. Now, the content of this section, it's still recording a summary of when Paul confronted Peter back in Antioch. You see the use of plural pronouns there in verse 15. We are ourselves. This section continues to summarize what Paul said to Peter back in Antioch. In these verses, Paul explains the gospel that he proclaims, the gospel that Peter needed to get back in step with. And Paul tells this story about what happened back in Antioch so that the Galatians might consider their situation that they too would get back in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, Peter's hypocritical actions were sending the message that Gentiles must observe the food laws of the Old Testament if they are to be right with God and counted as God's people. And Paul uses this situation to launch into teaching the central Christian doctrine that justification is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Let's take a look, starting in verse 15. Paul and Peter, they were Jews by birth, belonging to God's covenant people there in Israel. They were not born outside of the covenant as Gentile sinners who had no knowledge of God. Yet they both know as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that a person is not made right with God by observing the Old Testament law, but only through faith in Jesus. Look at the beginning of verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This verse, verse 16, is the foundation for the rest of the letter of Galatians. In verse 16, we find the answer to the question, on what basis is someone made right with God? Observing God's law is not the basis by which someone will be accepted by a holy God. That will never be the basis for justification. No human being, Jew or Gentile, is made right with God by doing what the Old Testament law requires, but only through faith in Jesus. Again, he keeps hammering home this point. The only way to be right with God is through faith in Jesus. There's only one basis for salvation for all people. The only way to be made right with God is to trust in Jesus, faith in Jesus, and not by anything else. Justification is by faith alone in Christ. Now, in verse 16, throughout this letter, we, we find the word justified and the phrase works of the law repeated in verse 16, really throughout the letter. So this word justified, it's used eight times in the letter to Galatians. Here in verse 16 alone, it shows up three times. So a simple basic definition, three words, to declare righteous. Simple three-letter, three-word definition, to declare righteous. The word justified, it's, it's judicial language. It's courtroom language, a judge declaring a person who's been accused not guilty, innocent, righteous. One helpful definition I've read, you don't have to write this down, you can just listen to it. 
Justification is the gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a declaration. It's a verdict from the holy judge. And Christian, this verdict of not guilty of righteous is yours the moment you're converted, the moment you are born again, the moment by God's grace you repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you were declared righteous by God now and forevermore, meaning nothing will ever change that verdict. And in the future, on that last day when Christ returns, on the final day of judgment, there will be a public declaration a declaration we all anticipate and wait for as Christians from God over all of his people, mine, righteous, not guilty. That declaration, already ours, yet one day we'll all receive it together as one church. The second definition, or second term rather to define here, works of the law. Another phrase that we also see eight times in the letter And three times here in verse 16. Why is it the same number of times? Well, it's often given here as a a contrast to faith. So Paul brings up this phrase, works of the law, when it appears to contrast faith. And works of the law refers to all that is commanded in the Old Testament law. So the works prescribed in the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, summarized in the Ten Commandments. Paul makes it unmistakably clear. No human being is made right with God by means of the law. He keeps hammering this home. Verse 16 continues, So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Before the law of God, you and I, human beings, we stand condemned guilty of breaking God's law. The only way to change that standing and to be made right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith meaning believing, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in His death on the cross that paid for sin, His burial and His resurrection to new life, trusting in this risen and reigning Savior to be justified before a holy God. In other words, faith is the necessary response to what God has done through Jesus Christ, His Son. There's a response, so we don't rehearse the good news. Even on the calendar, too often, the Hallmark calendar for a lot of people, Christmas and Easter are just regular days, Hallmark holidays. Well, those two moments in history for Christians, they remind us of the good news. Uh, Christ died on a Friday and he rose from the dead on Sunday. We typically recognize that on Easter Sunday, those Christians, every Sunday morning, we celebrate Christ is risen from the dead. Looking back, December 25th, the incarnation, the greatest moment in human history where the eternal God came down in the form of a tiny little baby and Jesus came to die. He came to save There's a necessary response to those moments in history. It's faith. It's trusting and believing in Jesus. So at the heart of the gospel is that justification is by faith alone in Jesus. Without any addition, no human deeds added, 
trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. In God's amazing grace, what justification by faith tells us is that God takes guilty sinners, He forgives them through faith in Jesus Christ, and all of those who are forgiven of their sins against God are acquitted of all charges that the law would bring against us, pronounced not guilty, and given right standing before God. You know, if you're here this morning and you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, you need to understand the truth here. God will judge everyone. At the end of your life, God will judge you for your sin. He is a holy judge. And if you are to survive God's judgment for sin, you must repent of your sin, meaning turn from your sin, and trust in Jesus Christ to be forgiven. There's no other way to be justified. There is no other way to be forgiven of your sins. How is it do you expect to be forgiven of your sins against God? It can't be by merely trying to do better things, trying to live better this year than you did last year, trying to get more serious about being a moral person. The Apostle Paul makes it clear the only way to be justified, the only way to be saved is to repent and believe in Jesus. And that gospel is something that is in the middle of everything we do in this local church. Sunday mornings, things we do before Sunday morning, an equipping hour, our food pantry, all of our ministries in the community, our our campus ministry at UNC Charlotte, all of our ministries point to the truth of this gospel. And if you want to know what it would look like to get right with God today, it's something you can do. You can turn right now in your mind and heart and say, Lord, please forgive me. I put my faith in Jesus. Talk to someone who brought you. I'll be down here. Any of our pastors will be at the door afterwards. We'd love to talk with you more about what it would look like for you to get right with God today by putting your faith in Jesus. And for all believers here, it's important for us to understand the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It is all of the Christian life. I mentioned earlier on in our sermon series that the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther, one of his favorite books of the Bible, maybe even his favorite book of the Bible, the book of Galatians. He read the book of Galatians. God opened up his eyes to see the grace of God. He loved this book. And Martin Luther claimed that justification by faith alone is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. So together our life stands or it falls upon this doctrine. It's at the very heart of Christianity. Well, Christian, I wonder where do you find your identity? likely in what you've accomplished in life. It's where we tend to look for identity far too often. We seek to wrongly build our identity around what we've accomplished in school, in our places of of, of work, what we've accomplished in the home, what you've accomplished in your relationships, marriage, children, friendships. The doctrine of justification by faith alone, I love this about it, it reminds you, Christian, that your identity is found in something you did not accomplish. Something that's a gift. And because we did not accomplish our salvation, there's no room for boasting. There's only room for enjoying. Thanking God for His grace. Rejoicing that we've been forgiven by no merit of our own. It's at the heart of Christianity, justification by faith alone, but I would understand it's at the heart of each and every Christian in this room, at the heart of your devotion to Jesus. 
that you've been set free all by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Every good spiritual gift you have has not been earned. It's been given. And therefore, you can joyfully praise and thank God. Salvation is found in Christ by faith alone. There is no room for boasting. And therefore, there is only room for resting. Resting in Jesus and in his finished work. A third and final part, verses 17 through 21, living by faith. Living by faith. Verse 17 begins a new thought, but Paul is still addressing Peter here. You can see plural pronouns still in use here in this section. And he turns to address some objections to his teaching on the gospel. Perhaps these objections, they even came from this party from James in Jerusalem. Paul's opponents seem to be suggesting that if you seek to be justified only by faith and remove the works of the law, that this somehow might encourage people to sin. And then they would end up accusing Christ as a servant of sin or a facilitator of sin. And Paul answers that charge at the end of verse 17, certainly not. Rather, he points to the real transgression in verse 18. What Peter was doing in effect was rebuilding walls that were already torn down, bringing back the Mosaic law and requiring works of the law in order to have a right standing before God. So Paul's message here, don't rebuild old structures that were destroyed by the cross of Jesus Christ. He's specifically referring to the Old Testament law here. That is a danger, Christian, in trusting in Christ and then returning to live like your acceptance before God is based on your obedience. So I don't understand that most Christians in this room are going to struggle with leaving here and feeling like you have to stop eating North Carolina barbecue tomorrow. I don't think that's it for us. But, but keep in mind, I think far too often as Christians, we'll proclaim a gospel that's all by grace, but sometimes we'll get off course and we'll start to live as if our acceptance before God is based on our good works, our church attendance, how many quiet times you've had. If you read through the Bible this year in its entirety or if you had to cheat and go a year and a half, let's be honest, how many of you actually finished the year of Bible? It's okay if you don't. Be in the Bible. That's the heart of it. Be in the Word. Abide in the Word. If you're reading a year, great. But just be in the Bible like we are on Sunday mornings. There's a danger in trusting in Christ and acting like that's the beginning of the life of a Christian and then going on as if it's now dependent on your own good behavior. The gospel is the entire Christian life. Not just how you enter the Christian life, but how you enjoy the Christian life life. We're saved by grace through faith. Well, what about good works, though? Well, chapter 3 goes on. It addresses a lot. Lord willing, we'll get there next week. There's a lot there about the Old Testament law, and I think we can even think about obedience and the difference between the Old Testament law and the law of Christ, life in the Spirit, the law of love. We'll get into that, Lord willing, in the coming weeks. But I think, simply put, you could read this and ask the question, what about obedience to God? What role does obedience to God play in the life of a Christian? A few months ago, I was sharing the gospel with an Uber driver who was driving us around, and he's Muslim. And I was talking about the difference between my religion and, and his religion. And uh, simply put, you've probably heard the comparison do versus 
done. Most world religions are what you must do to earn acceptance before God. Christianity is about what God alone has done through Jesus Christ to forgive rebels against his will. And I was sharing with him the gospel of grace, and he was really troubled by this as he's driving around. In fact, so troubled he wasn't paying attention to the road. So I was kind of like, all right, like, I'm getting this guy distracted here, but I want to have this conversation. And he looked at me, he's like, so all you have to do as a Christian is believe, and then you can just live however you want. That makes no sense. You can just live however you want. And he was so bothered by that wrong conclusion. Well, lest you wrongly overlook the importance of obedience to God in the life of a Christian, that's what Paul addresses here at the end of this passage in verses 19 through 20. He speaks of this new life lived to God. Everyone who's been justified lives now to God. Look at verse 19. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Sincere faith in Christ produces a new life. A life lived in obedience and worship to God. Paul died to the law. But this death to the law led to true obedience to God, living to the glory of God. Jesus perfectly kept God's law. He was the only one to do it. And then his death on the cross, he took that full penalty of the law on himself, and his death brought the era of the law to an end. He fulfilled the law. And those who trust in Jesus receive his victory over the law, freed from the curse and guilt of the law. Having been set free, those who are in Christ can live for God. In other words, there's a practical outworking of your faith, a visible witness of living to God. Now, it's in dispute who said this quote. Uh, Different people say it's Martin Luther. Different people say it's John Calvin. It could be both. I really didn't take the time to, to research all that historically. Somebody said it, one of the two, maybe both. It is faith alone that justifies, but the faith that justifies is not alone. Meaning it will be accompanied by good works. It's the, the, the result of having been justified. If faith is trusting in Jesus, actions based on that trust in Christ will follow. Now, again, this is a compressed section. We'll see more in chapter 3 about the law of love, the law of Christ. But for now, in this chapter, it's important to see the Christian life begins by faith, And the Christian life is lived out by faith. It's only by faith that we receive salvation, and it is through faith that we are enabled to live out this salvation. Every step, every moment of the Christian life, live by faith. Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a declaration in the past tense. The old self is gone when you trust in Jesus Christ. A radical transformation takes place. Christ dwells in you through the presence of his Holy Spirit at your conversion and then forevermore. And this helps us understand an incredibly important part of the Christian life. We live out the Christian life by faith in Christ who lives in you. Through His Spirit, 
Christ makes his home in the life of every believer. That's why Paul says that his life here on earth is lived by faith. Not by striving to keep the law, but by believing in Jesus. That's why we're called believers. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We live our life believing in Jesus, walking by faith, a life of enjoying God and resting in what He's done for us in Christ. But let's be clear, Christian. Your confidence for the future is not in the intensity of your faith. Sometimes you wrongly think that. It's about the intensity of my my faith, and that's what I'm going to keep my confidence in. If I can stay strong and feel strong spiritually, but here's the problem. The longer you live the Christian life, the more struggles and trials you're going to go through. We're all going to know suffering, and our faith will be strong at times, and at other times, it will feel weak. We still believe, but we feel weak. Our confidence, brothers and sisters, is not in the present intensity of our faith. Our confidence for the future, rather, is that our faith is sustained by the one who saved us. Our faith is sustained by the love of God. Not your love for God. Your faith sustained by God's love for you in Jesus. Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who what? Who loved me. God's love causes your faith to persevere. God's love for you is grounded in the cross of Jesus Christ. What's so great about your faith is the object of your faith. A crucified, risen, and reigning, and one day returning Savior. The one who lovingly gave himself for you is the one who will keep you to the end. Christian, how often... Do you think about how much God loves you? How often is that your response in worship on Sunday mornings? God loves me in Christ. I have forsaken Him this week in my actions. and I've fallen short, and He still loves me. Nothing will ever change that love. Brother and sister, that's the power of the faith that God has placed in you. The words of verse 20, they're, they're deeply personal. I trust Jesus who loves me. Jesus lovingly gave himself for me. He died for my sins. He died in my place, taking my punishment. Oh, how he loves me. Friends, rejoice in the truth of the gospel. This new life you've been given in Christ is all by the love of God, and therefore that life is sustained by the deep, deep love of Jesus. The concluding verse of this power-packed section, verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If it were possible to be righteous on your own by your works of the law, then why did Christ die? Why did He suffer? Why why did He willingly give Himself over to be humiliated and to suffer 
execution, treated as a public criminal and a public form of execution. Paul has made it so clear, righteousness does not come from the law. It comes only from Christ and through faith in Him. If somehow it could come from the law, then Christ died for no purpose. To add anything to the gospel is to lose it. There is no other gospel. It's the theme of this letter of Galatians. Adding anything to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is to reject the work of the cross entirely. Brother and sister, for those who find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can rest in Jesus. You can enjoy all that He is for you this morning. You can rejoice that you've been justified by faith alone. You can ask God for the strength and the help this morning to continue to live your life by faith, trusting and resting in what Christ has done in His deep, deep love. And you can ask Christ for His help to never seek to move beyond the gospel. I can't think of a better way to be reminded of the rest and the confidence that you and I have in Jesus than to come together this morning at a table of fellowship and to share a meal together as believers, God having made us one to fellowship and to share of this cup and of this bread, reminded of where our faith is, corporately professing our faith that Jesus Christ is our life our hope, our righteousness, our peace. Together, we remember and behold the one who was slain for us, and we rest in the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. Let's bow and pray now as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Lord, we ask that as we come now to take this meal together, that you would work in us, reminding us of your deep love for us as your people and your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may you draw our hearts and, and minds to him. Remind us of just how much you love us as your people. Father, may we remember this morning and be affected and changed as we celebrate the cross of Jesus Christ and his deep love demonstrated for us as his people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.